Hey guys, and welcome back to History Written by the Losers. I'm Annika. And I'm Sudha. And this week we're back after a quick one-week break. And we're continuing our American Immigration episode. As we were researching our second episode, we realized that there was so much more to the story than what we included. And so we wanted to create a second part to really highlight the other research and the other aspects of immigration that we didn't cover in our first episode. Right. The story of immigrants in America is so rich and layered that we could spend hours talking about it. But today we wanted to talk about the Japanese people in America. So at the same time as the Chinese were coming into America, in Japan, there was the Meihai Restoration, which led to great changes at the late 1800s, Japan's political and social structure changed dramatically. And so this triggered a lot of people looking for a better life economically to try to move to America, starting with Hawaii, and they settled along the West Coast. And slowly came into America all the way up until the East Coast. But as they came, they mainly had jobs as farmers and fishermen and fisherwomen. Mm-hmm. And obviously these weren't the only jobs they had, but similar to the Chinese with the railroads, these were the jobs that they were mainly getting in America because they were not able to procure higher up level jobs. So they were starting at the bottom rung. But a lot of the history of the Japanese people in America actually revolves around World War II. Yeah, that's right. So in World War II, the United States was on the side of the Allies, and the main three Axis powers were, of course, Germany, Italy, and Japan. And I think the catalyst that set off this fear and this hatred of Japanese Americans was the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which was in December of 1941. So that bombing really uh, set off this chain of events that were created based on fear of the Japanese Americans in the United States that they were afraid were spies and were involved in espionage against our country. Right. And at that point in the early 1940s, Japanese people had been stopped from coming into America after the 1924 Asian Exclusion Act. Yeah. Because of that, Japanese society in America was strangely split. There were the people who had come in before the Asian Exclusion Act. Which were the Issai. It was mainly split into generational groups, right? Right. So the Issai were the immigrants, the first generation immigrants. And then their children who were born in America. Were the Nisai. And then after that, their children eventually, much later, were the Issai's grandchildren or the Sansei. And I'm sorry if I just butchered that pronunciation. (laughs) So when World War II came to American shores with the bombing of Pearl Harbor, almost within 48 hours, the government began to round up Japanese Americans, the Issei and their children. But that was more under the radar. It took quite a while for actual legislation to be passed. And while they were considering internment for Japanese Americans, a lot of propaganda was being spread Maybe not as harsh of a term as propaganda, but it still had the same effects. Lieutenant General John DeWitt, who was the Army General in command of the West Coast, was very firmly in favor of interning Japanese Americans because he felt that, in his words, a Jap's a Jap. They are a dangerous element, whether loyal or not. 
So he provided a lot of support for what would eventually become Executive Order 9066, which would intern Japanese Americans. Along with John DeWitt, there were a lot of political cartoons that were published, and all sorts of different authors had weighed in on the subject of whether they supported it or not. Many of them on the West Coast did, including Walter Lippmann, who published a really influential article, which helped shape a lot of Americans' ideas about internment. So in February of 1942, finally, FDR signed Executive Order 9066, and this actually put the stamp of uh, government approval on the actions that DeWitt was already taking on the coast. And they took the Issei and the Nisei, their children, who were actually U.S. citizens by birth, they took them and started organizing them into camps in the interior of the country. Yes, and so that was the order, but on March 21st, that was implemented by Congress, and April 21st, the evacuation order was given by Lieutenant General DeWitt. So that was where a lot of uh, internment had actually started. But before internment, there had also been curfews and a lot of other infringements on uh, Japanese-American civil rights that were also passed, but Executive Order 9066 really was the main order that forced them into internment camps. Now, it wasn't like there wasn't any opposition to this at all. In fact, there was a case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. But it took quite a while for it to reach the Supreme Court. So it was only in 1944 that Korematsu versus the U.S. was finally held. And it dealt with Fred Korematsu, who was a Californian Japanese American. And he refused to go to his internment camp because he felt his civil rights were being infringed upon. And... Eventually, they ruled that the evacuation order was valid, and it was not necessary to address any of the racial discrimination issues that were involved in the executive order. It was a 6-3 to ruling in the Supreme Court, and the dissenters were strongly against it, but it was passed, and that's how the executive order was sustained. Right. Come to think about it, like with what's happening right now in our country, where, you know, even wearing a mask to protect others from the threat of a virus is considered an infringement on somebody's civil rights. And here were an entire group of people solely because of their race, even though they were American citizens, were sent off to prison. And I'm actually very grateful because in my English class last year, we were able to read a book called Farewell to Manzanar, written by Jean Wakatsuki, who was a Japanese-American citizen who was interned when she was about seven years old. And so I know that a lot of kids actually don't know about this, but I was fortunate to have read a book written by an interned Japanese-American. And she gives a really good first-hand account of internment. She talks about how there were packed sleeping quarters, there were communal mess halls, open toilets, which were, aside from the obvious health problems, it's also just privacy, which is a really important part of a lot of Asian cultures and Western cultures too. Just not having privacy is a incredible. And, right, and they had to live like that for years and years. And it didn't matter how large your family was. Everybody got just one room. Yeah. So they were packed together and had to share so many amenities. And it was a time of great hardship for the Japanese people. And actually, when you read Farewell to Manzanar is actually the first time that I realized the details of the Japanese internment, because although I took a full citizenship test to become a citizen of this country, no surprises, none of these are mentioned on there. 
Aside from the whole privacy issues, there was barely any heat or AC. Uh, there were not holes in the floor and the walls. In a different account that we read, we read about like dust storms that would be really problematic on a lot of these camps. And Jean, the main character in the book, her father had actually been captured by the FBI before her family had been interned. And he went to an all-male internment camp until he was returned uh, to the internment camp that Jean and her family were at. And when he came back, he was not only abusive, but he had a drinking problem. And he was in constant recluse because of the way that the internment camp that he was at had reshaped him. And really, like, put him through so much trauma that he was a completely different person. Right. But... You know, the other thing is through this time, the Japanese people had one motto that they embraced, right? That they could get through anything. Shikata ga nai, which means that it cannot be helped. So through this whole thing, they had this one motto, which is really beautiful because it really shows the resilience that they had. So a lot of Japanese Americans adopted this phrase because they understood that they could not help their situation, so they were determined to make the best of it, which is amazing that they had such resilience and perseverance, and it was incredibly hard to live in such horrible conditions, but the fact that this phrase became popular is really... um Remarkable. Yeah, it's really remarkable. But uh, about a year after internment had begun, in February of 1943, loyalty questionnaires were sent out. And what these basically said was, as described in Farewell to Mansonar, was that there were two boxes on a piece of paper. You had to check both boxes. And the first box said that I am a loyal American citizen. And the second box said that I am willing to serve my country and be in the selective service. So technically, you didn't have to check both boxes. But if you didn't check both boxes, then the government could say that you were not a loyal American citizen. So the men in the families of these Japanese Americans had to basically either say that they would fight for America, a country that had locked them up uh, in World War II, or they were completely unloyal to the U.S. and they had to be interned. So they really only had two options, either be interned or go fight in a war. Either way, there's a really high chance of dying. Right. So a lot of Japanese Americans did sign up to go fight in World War II. And because so many did sign up, there was an all-Nissai 442nd Regimental Combat Team that was a very highly decorated because... They, a lot of them had no other option. They were either interned or fighting in the war. And the Nisei are actually second generation immigrants. They were born in this country. They knew no other country, but they had to prove their loyalty. Yeah, and that was a lot of the propaganda that was sent around for internment in support of internment was to say that the Japanese Americans needed to prove their loyalty to their, to their country and this is how they should prove their loyalty. And also that... It was a show of patriotism, that this is how they can show that they're true Americans and that any American would do it in their situation. Right. So finally, after all of this, in 1944, the ex parte endo ruling was released. It was about three years after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and the Supreme Court finally authorized the end of Japanese-American incarceration because they ruled that concededly loyal United States citizens could not be held regardless of military necessity, which was their reasoning for the internment. 
but the key word in there is conceitedly loyal. So they actually used those loyalty questionnaires that had been sent out previously against them. And they said that if Japanese Americans had not properly answered questions on there, meaning checked both boxes, they could still be interned for a little while longer until the whole thing was put to an end. When the end of war. Yeah. yeah. So many were still interned, but those who were returning to their normal lives actually didn't really have any normal life to return to because along with the hostility and prejudice that they faced as they returned back into society, a lot of their houses and homes had been seized uh, either for non-payment of taxes or other reasons because they were interned for three years. And again here, which is really beautiful, is that Shikata Ganai was adopted. It cannot be helped and so they made the best of their situation, although it was incredibly hard. The story of Japanese immigrants to America is really heartbreaking, profound, but also inspiring, right? Because the resilience of immigrants is exemplified in their attitude towards all of this. Yeah, and it also really shows how a war can kind of change the attitude of a country. And not just the attitude, but it changes their needs. This was also shown in the Bracero program, which was adopted during World War II as well. Around the same time as the internment of Japanese Americans, the Bracero program was initialized. Mm -hmm. And that was an agreement between the U.S. and Mexican governments. And it basically permitted that Mexican citizens could take temporary agricultural work in the U.S. And this was for the wartime effort. There was an enormous manpower shortage and... There were a whole bunch of applicants from Mexico who wanted to come to the United States and earn some money. And it became very difficult to actually get a permit to come into the United States because there was an overwhelming amount of applicants. And in many cases, there was like a bribery system and miniature systems that were set up in order to get more immigrants in. Right. But what is interesting to me is that at that time, though, even though there was this valid program that was giving permits for people to come and work temporarily from Mexico, there were still a lot of illegal crossings across the border. Yeah. And that was because the program didn't account for how many applicants there would be. And so the number of illegal immigrants actually was equal to or surpassed the number of braceros, which were the legal immigrants as part of this program. Even the legal braceros who came in with permits were not treated very well in this country. Yeah, the braceros were supposed to have protections for health, housing, food, wages, and working hours, but most of them were just disregarded by federal and state governments, as well as the growers that were hiring them. Another requirement that was completely disregarded was the requirement that Mexican nationals were not to be discriminated against, which obviously did not end up being followed. And it became so bad that in Texas, Mexicans were actually forbidden from entering the U.S. to go to Texas because discrimination was that bad there. So the Mexican government had to step in. Right. But by the uh, 1960s, the Brasero program actually had a natural death because of a lot of changes that were happening in agriculture. Yes, there was a mechanical cotton harvester that was slowly destroying the practicality of the Bracero program. And this was just in time because in the U.S. there were a lot of changes going on in the 1960s, the civil rights movement. And that is where a lot of immigration reform actually occurred. In the 1960s, 
the civil rights movement also had a lot of immigrants fighting for their rights as well, on not just black Americans, because both faced prejudice. And eventually, in 1965, the Immigration and Naturalization Act was passed. So this act in 1965 actually abolished the quota system that had been there since 1924, where the number of immigrant visas were granted based on national origin. Instead, they moved to a system where there would be some priority for reuniting immigrant families, but it was also the first time that the United States adopted a skill-based immigration program. Yeah, and so what that means is that they started favoring immigrants who were more skilled and more educated, and they deemed them more useful to the United States if they had these skills, and therefore they were preferentially allowed into the country, along with refugees. But the preferential treatment of those with higher education and higher skill sets was the beginning of a myth that was created in the United States, which was the model minority myth. Mainly at this time, Asian immigrants who had been barred from entering in the 1924 Act were finally allowed back into the United States, and a lot of them were coming in, and a lot of them had the best education that their countries had to offer. So the model minority myth was created that Asian immigrants are the smartest and they're hardworking and they know when to keep their head down and they're just, they're really... Chasing the American dream. Yeah, they're the model of an immigrant. Right. So with the passage of this act, in the first five years, immigrants from Asia quadrupled. The only reason that this act was actually passed in that form was because of the awareness that had been generated by the civil rights movement. Yeah. But the immigrants coming in and the model minority myth actually worked against black Americans because white Americans would have this sort of uh, attitude. You know, attitude that look at these immigrants from Asia, they are able to make a life here and pull themselves up from their bootstraps, even though they come from, you know, similar impoverished backgrounds. And the only reason that black Americans are not able to do this is because they must be lazy. So this set up a very bad scenario where they were pitting immigrant groups against blacks and trying to show that there was some sort of racist origin for why black Americans were not able to advance in life. This wasn't just then. Even now, this attitude is held by a lot of Americans, but we need to work to eradicate that as Asians ourselves and just as Americans, because we know that a lot of these immigrants who were coming in had very high education and favorable skill sets compared to black people who were oppressed in the United States forever. Uh, So... This myth is harmful towards immigrants, towards black Americans, and towards America as a whole. Right, and it's also uh, harmful for the story it creates about the Asian immigrants too, because if you look at the numbers today in America, quite a number of Asian immigrants actually live in poverty and are not holding highly skilled jobs. There are even a lot of illegal immigrants from Asia in this country. And children too. A lot of Asian children are expected to be always smart and always the top in their class. But that's just not realistic because every person is different and no person should be expected to be one way or another because of their heritage. So 
because of this huge new surge of releasing the quotas that were nationality based, there was a little bit more of a restriction on the Western Hemisphere immigrants, which included Mexico, Central and South America. And this is the first time that immigration in the Western Hemisphere had actually been restricted as opposed to the previous 1924 Act and other immigration acts prior to this. It followed the elimination of the Bracero program and so there was a lot of Mexican immigrants who were trying to get into the country which is where a lot of illegal immigration continued to happen because of that. Right, this particular immigration act exacerbated the problem that we face on our southern border. Yes. And after the 1965 Immigration Act, there were a couple more. There was an Immigration Reform Act in 1986, which was working to better enforce the immigration policies, but it also granted amnesty program for illegal immigrants to become citizens, or at least live in the United States. And it granted amnesty to more than 3 million illegal aliens. That is surprising. I didn't know that. So even starting in 1986, there was a version of the DACA program. Yes. So if you look at statistics between 1965 and 2000, there were about 1.4 million from the Philippines, Korea, Dominican Republic, as well as India, Cuba, and Vietnam. So these are the leading countries from where people migrate to the United States. So a lot of Asian immigrants were finally being allowed back into our country. So we kind of have the civil rights activists like Martin Luther King Jr. to thank for CCing immigrants on his memo. (laughs) Right. And that leads us to immigration today, where there is a lot of stigma against immigrants uh, right now in our country, but that's not something that we should have. A lot of the stigma was formed after 9-11. We are in a post-9-11 world, and after 9-11, there was a lot of immigration reform. A lot of it actually kind of reversed some of the effects of the 1965 Immigration Act. Right, so I think the entire attitude towards immigration changed with the terrorist attacks because instead of being a welcoming country to immigrants, the act actually served as a means to screen out possible terrorists. So it was more of a defense mechanism. But we shouldn't allow fear to overcome the need for a diverse population in our country. Because 9-11 was kind of like the bombing at Pearl Harbor. It created this huge surge of of fear in Americans. Pearl Harbor was fear of Japanese Americans. 9-11 was a fear of Muslim immigrants Mm. and just immigrants in general. After 9-11, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which had previously overseen all immigration, was actually dissolved and it was replaced with the DHS, or Department of Homeland Security. And the DHS has three different parts, which is Customs and Border Protection, which you'll know if you have taken any international flights, the Citizenship and Immigration Services, or CIS, and the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. Right. So right after 9-11, many Muslims uh, who were legally present in this country or even were part of a family of 
citizens and legal residents were forcibly deported back to their countries of origin. And to this day, the government has not released the entire list or number of people who were deported after 9-11. And I'm sure that the way we talk about Japanese internment now, so many decades after it happened and there's more clarity, in the next few decades, hopefully in your schools, they will be teaching us about what happened when fear overtook us again after 9-11. And it's not just about Muslim and Middle Eastern immigrants that there's a lot of stigma, but there's also a lot of stigma around Hispanic immigrants in the United States now. There's a lot of talk about ICE at the border, in the southern border, and Mexican immigrants. Right. And so what is happening is that ICE has become instrumental as a organization that is actively tearing families apart at the border and illegal immigrants coming into this country are facing horrible situations and you know we've all read about the children being locked up in the cages so we don't know which direction immigration law is going to head in this country but hopefully as americans we can all take a more active role in supporting immigration because national security is important but it's also important to recognize the contributions that immigrants have made to our country and it's important to recognize how a more diverse population is also a more beautiful and a more welcoming population to the world and to each other thank you so much for listening if you have any comments ideas thoughts or suggestions please feel free to let us know Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. This has been History Written by the Losers.